This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, I'm Ross Melnick. This is Elliot Travers. We just watched uh, They Shall Not Grow Old. Um, I have a few questions for Elliot, and then we'll take some questions at the end. Um, Elliot, maybe you can just start from the very beginning. How did this project begin? When did you come on it? And uh, what was the whole impetus for this project to start? Yeah, well, the Imperial War Museum um, was anticipating the centenary of the armistice, the, you know, the end of the war, which would have been November uh, 2018, would have been you know, 100 years. And um, they had this enormous collection of well, the, some of the footage that you've seen, um, most of it in the condition like you saw in the sort of beginning and, and the end. Uh, and they really wanted to do something that would present that material because most of it sort of sits in the archive and isn't really so easy to access or, you know, kind of line up with, you know, anything else. And they, uh, you know, are obviously aware of Peter Jackson. He's constantly going to the museum and pestering them about questions or things and has a, such a huge interest that they thought he would be a perfect fit to try to do something with the material to, to you know, present it to people. And so... Initially, they um, had an idea to, you know, turn it into something like a 30-minute short of some sort uh, to present at a royal screening um, in London. And then afterwards, it would be uh, handed over to uh, high schools and primary schools as an educational resource. And so that, was, um, that would have been 2013 when they approached him. But um, funnily enough, looking at the project, we actually have audio from this going well back into 2000. And Eight and two thousand and nine, which is just incidental. That's just material that Peter's so interested in. He's been pulling into our collection for, you know, that period of time. Yeah. So, what does this material look like when you guys got it? How did you get it? What did they do to send it to you? What was the process by which you received it? And why did you decide to go in this direction? Ooh, that's a question. Um, okay, so they have the original um, negative, which is nitrate-based film. It's, it's panachromatic, and it's in varying stages of quality. And I mean, a lot of it can be um, triple or even quadruple printed, so like copied um, as, you know, back in the day they would have wanted to copy it to recut it to turn it into different versions of newsreels to send around England or the rest of the world. And so unfortunately in some cases the only version that the museum will hold will be like a third or fourth generation and you can sort of see the sprocket holes like stepping in and in and the quality is obviously degraded and there's holes in it or scratches. Uh, it also shrinks and expands, which creates issues with um, kind of jump in the gate. So, you know, that all has to be um, accounted for. But in the first case, it gets um, scanned in a traditional way as you would telecine um, film. Uh, in some cases, we do sort of a multi-layered approach with the film to try to bring a bit more out of highlights and, and lowlights. And then that would get sent to us, uh, the original frames, as uh, DPX 2K files, like a, an image sequence. And then that's, that's where we start, basically. And then we would bring that into our um, equipment, um, mostly the Mystica and uh, programs like Phoenix, to sort of, in the first case, just get it as it comes in. It could be really badly damaged, almost unwatchable, but just to get a, a sort of viewing copy of it, and we'd turn that into uh, Avid Media that would come into Media Composer, and we'd organize it, go trawl through databases trying to identify what it is and who's in there. And then while that's happening uh, and we're getting our um, historians started on that kind of work, we'd be doing a, a kind of a 
first run restorative pass on it just to make things more visible and, and more watchable, but still frame for frame, so still you know stuttery and jumping up and down and stuff like that. So you get this material in, mm. and you start, Peter Jackson starts to look at it, and mm. the team starts to look at it. At what point do you say, where's something else we can do with this? When did that transformation happen from the 30-minute idea of let's get this material mm. back out to a night screening and to some educational material for British schools mm. to the fact of thinking, well, maybe there's something more inventive, more mm. impactful that happens? How did that process take place? Yeah, I mean, we were doing a lot of testing with a lot of different kind of proprietary equipment to see what we could do with the restoration. And, and part and parcel with that was developing the retiming you know, mechanisms that we were going to use. And through that, Peter really started to connect with uh, the faces of these soldiers and, and people that were in there and seeing the little uh, human moments and expressions that were there. And, and I mean, he just kind of let his imagination run wild and was got to a point where we were thinking, why, why are we only trying to make this you know, black and white? We should really, they saw the war in colour. We, we have all this reference, a huge library of, of original World War I you know, uniforms, weapons, whatever you want to use to, to colourise and recreate what it was like for them. And so that conversation started with uh, the Imperial War Museum and we uh, found a vendor partner in Stereo D who were willing to come on and sort of tackle this enormous job. So there's a kind of, um, just for people who don't understand the whole process by which, maybe the technical process by which it, it went from this juttery, you know, uh, differently yeah. uh, sort of different frequencies and, and frame rates to this what are all the different kinds of special effects, if you will, mm. that were used, including not just colorization, but mm. the way that you, things are framed, the, yeah, the way right. that you smooth things out? Can you go through just a kind of a small list of, of how you get this kind of um, this intimacy and this experiential yeah. feeling? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the original scan would have scanned each frame for frame, and as I said, it can kind of move around in the, the gate that you're scanning it on. So a first instance would just kind of be centering it and getting the edges kind of cleaned up and nice, and then, you know, we have um, an issue with the, the stock that was used at the time, a panochromatic. It's considerably more sensitive to blues and sort of, you know, colder colours than it is to yellows and, you know, warmer colours like that. So knowing that, we could kind of uh, balance to accommodate you know, what had happened and then we'd start to see more details come out that weren't necessarily there things like sort of patches on the helmets and stuff like that which you wouldn't have noticed until you've kind of leveled things like that off uh, then once we've got that uh, you know, cleaned up and, and, and removed the scratches and the, the jumpiness and balanced out the exposure uh, we start playing around um, with retiming it, so slowing it down. Now, that's really guesswork. Um, the, all the cameras were very new. I mean, when you would have seen a lot of the soldiers reacting and kind of not knowing what to do and just sort of sitting there because that was such new technology. They were used to going into a studio and having sort of braces put on them and having to sit very still for maybe like a 10-second exposure on a still frame. So seeing someone sitting there hand-cranking a... A film, you know, they didn't know what to do, that you'd potentially sort of get the impression that off camera in a lot of these shots, the cameraman would suddenly be like, no, come on, like, move around, do what you're going to do, because they're kind of just stopped, you know, in, in their tracks. Um, yeah, and so with that in mind, uh, it was just a lot of trial and error. You know, we'd, we'd sort of have an idea of a lot of the shots that we would want, so we'd have a range to work with, and then we just have to experiment with slowing it down. Uh, historically, 
we thought that uh, about 16 frames a second was about right for what it was supposed to be. But we found in practice it was really sometimes as low as 9, 10, 11 frames a second and sometimes as high as sort of 17, 18, 19. I mean, where it gets really tricky, though, is that the rate would change within the duration of a shot. Like, I mean, you have to remember that these cameramen were right on the front line being, having bullets go past them and shells explode in front of them. So you can imagine if you're hang, cranking a camera, you're, you know, you being consistent might be tricky. Or you know, if you pan, it might change a little bit. I mean, another funny thing as well is that um, film stock was obviously expensive and you know, very hard to get onto the front line. Like once you're there, you're kind of like the soldiers in terms of your access to supplies. So um, you would find often, particularly at the front, uh, they would undercrank the camera intentionally just to save footage so that they'd have more to use. So at what point when this, uh, this process is going on, did, you spe- did the production start to talk to the Imperial War Museum about what was going to happen? And did mm. they say that this sounds great or they express any reservations about yeah. the way in which this was going to change the way that they perceive their footage mm. to look like? Yeah, I mean, that was, they certainly had trepidations about that because being a museum, they sort of want to preserve things in their original condition. It was filmed in black and white, obviously, and you know, while they were sort of on board for cleaning up the scratches and things like that, they weren't so sold on um, the colorization necessarily. That conversation, I believe, sort of happened around uh, 20, end of 2016 into 2017. Um, but once they understood, you know, the fact that we had um, full-time military historians that were, you know, completely across all of this, we had an extensive collection of um, World War One uniforms, uh, you know, weapons, vehicles, anything you could really want, to be honest. And where were all these uh, objects stored? <laughs> well, well, we've, yeah, we're kind of running out of space, to be honest. I mean, most warehouses you'd see dotted around um, Wellington would have probably some, you know, <laughs> something in there of one form. But they're all, they're, most of these are Peter Jackson's, yeah? Yeah, he owns the collection, yes. <laughs> Not myself, no, no. <laughs> Just to be clear. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No. Um, And what's also interesting <laughs> is that this is, the, when we're talking about special effects or, mm. or kind of an archive effect here, is that there's two different tracks of that. There's an audio effects mm. that are happening, and there's, there's also visual effects. I wonder if you could just talk for a little bit about the audio effects, because there's, that's a whole other process. On top of dealing with the footage, it's then mm. how you, the, of course, there's the famous lip reading sequence that, that I'd yeah, just yeah. love for you to explain, but also how people, how you got the voices uh, and the sound effects and that whole process. Yeah, well, again, I mean, that was, I was so impressed by um, our team at Pakura Post there with the work that they did because they're literally starting with nothing. At least with picture, we've got something to kind of you know, go with, but there was no, no audio recording in situ, obviously. Um, again, drawing on our um, collection, they were able to you know, create, create a lot of the effects from uh, period piece equipment. I mean, Peter Jackson owns you know, World War I artillery pieces, so we like, <laughs> pulled those out of, the, you know, out of the shed and we were able to get like, the breach mechanisms, opening shells going in and out, the, them travelling around. Um, we have a relationship with the New Zealand Army. They train a few times a year, firing 105 millimeter howitzers. So we arranged with them to go and um, mic uh, near the the firing um, pieces, as well as on ridge lines and nearer to the impact sites. So you know, when you're hearing the shells whistle over, that's that's a real shell, live shell. And when it's impacting, that's you know not something that's out of a library. That's all like practical. And those those um. Those artillery pieces are very, very similar in, in, 
in size to what was you know generally fired on on World War One. I'm just also just go back about fidelity uh, um, to get the color scheme and the kind of the right mm. gradations of foliage and grass and mud. Mm. What was the work that was done by the historians on site and oh, by Peter yeah. Jackson done? To also give it a kind of a level of historical uh, accuracy. Yeah. So, I mean, Peter, he's a huge World War I buff. He travels um, pretty regularly to France and likes looking around the sites. For this particular job, he um, went through Belgium and France um, with a camera, just on his own, hired a car, and was wandering around taking photos of a lot of the sites that are there. You know, um, Something that's quite interesting about that area is it's mostly chalk uh, in the ground, which... Um, kind of became evident, and you know, that can become confusing for a lot of the footage when it's, you know, potentially winter, you know, you might think it's snow. So discovering, you know, where that is and, and, and why really helps us get that, you know, that level of accuracy. Um, another method that we employed was uh, after having a colorized version of a shot, we would take the black and white version um, and kind of layer it underneath it to sort of retrieve some of the, the chromacy, the, the, the tonal change between the highlights and the lowlights, just to bring a bit more detail back into areas that were colorized, And we found that was really effective if we might be losing a little bit of detail, you know, once the color layer goes on top of it. Mm. How long did this take? I mean, that maybe from when you really got into production and to the time in which release? Uh, it would probably be about 18 months, 20 months all up when we really started working on, on like creating the shots. But, I mean, before that, oh, I mean, we've had researchers just basically trawling through the audio since, yeah, about 2010, something like that, yeah. You, you were telling us before the screening of an interesting mm-hmm. fact about how, how late this transition from being oh, a yeah. shorter film into what was a feature. Yeah, right. Can you kind of go through that very interesting timeline? Yeah, so, I mean, up until really about a month or five weeks before delivery, we didn't really know that it was going to be much more than 45 minutes, to be honest. And that was already sort of violently pushing out the 30, 35 minutes that we'd agreed to with the Imperial War Museum. And um, Peter very cleverly, you know, wanted to make use of um, some of the unrestored footage, which you saw at the beginning and the end, to kind of bookend the colorized part of the war, the, 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 the color of war, um, and, and create more of a, you know, beginning, middle, and end, like a, like a, of, of the journey of these soldiers. Um, and so that, yeah, that came together very quickly uh, across about a month, really, um, but very much to the dismay of <laughs> distributors who had kind of pre-booked slots and sold tickets for this show and suddenly it's like <laughs> three times as long <laughs> yeah but I think you know I think I think it does better for it right yeah absolutely mm. um I'm wondering if you have like a favorite memory of working on the film or something mm. or kind of a eureka moment that you were involved in that kind of makes you when you were watching it just a few minutes ago you look back on it and you think I remember when we were working on it and it was so difficult but we decided to do this or yeah i mean there's there's probably two moments that really stick out for me which were really are uh, rewarding uh the first which was more involved me directly is um i have a second credit on there as uh, an adr artist and that was uh when we were doing the the looping for a lot of the scenes um we really wanted to make sure that we were you know i mean our, our historians identified the the regiment and the 
the, the regional dialects that would be spoken by the guys in the particular shot, and then we would find people that were from there to loop and you know, provide the, the, store, the, the words that were being spoken. Uh, there, were, there were a lot of Anzac uh, shots in there, Australian New Zealand troops, and one of them featured the Wellington Battalion, where I'm, you know, I'm from Wellington, New Zealand. And so it was a real privilege to go in there and record uh, some of the lines. And not only that, like actually distinctly hear my voice in that <laughs> shot. I'm like, yeah, you know. I'm which, not... <laughs> which, which shot is it? Oh, it's the, it's the, there's a Wellington Battalion there. You know, you remember they were doing like a roly-poly? Uh, it's that scene, and that's the, the Wellington Battalion, and it's when they're getting told to put their packs on, and it's, you know, come on, Wellingtons, packs on, form up, that's... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I like that I'm, you know, I'm a kind of in it a bit, as well as, you know, on the roller, it's nice. Yeah. And then the, the other moment, which was really just nice to know that you're all the work you do in the research leads to this thing and you're just like, oh my God, it's, we got it. And it's a shot where the, um, the Bedfords, it's, uh, there's, um, you're in a town there and all the troops are lining up and there's a sergeant, or no, it might be a captain, um, reading off a piece of paper and he's sort of giving them a, a pep talk before, the, before the, you know, the battle. And that shot's been used heaps of times in other, other films and you know it's, you never know you just know this guy he's sort of just sitting there sort of blabbing away you never know what he's talking about and we managed to track down the, the, the resources that were left over from that regiment and this huge box of papers and they were going through them and they found this little, little speech and sure enough it was what they were saying and, and Peter just used his iPhone to sort of record some temp for it and Jabez the editor kind of you know moved it around a bit and sure enough yeah it lined up and then you know we got a, a proper Englishman to <laughs> go, and, <laughs> go and voice it but it's just it's so nice when you're not like you're not left with being like oh it has to be like a best guess like knowing that yeah that's literally you know the bit of paper that they were given to to speak to those guys and that's absolutely what he's saying is it's just yeah really rewarding. I wonder if I can go back to the idea of what Peter Jackson's idea was with this film. What's mm. the overall kind of why do it this way? What was the desire? Was it to uh, recapture the sense of World War One? Was it to honor the the veterans of World War One? Was it those two things plus mm. something else? I mean, what was the the kind of impetus for this whole film beyond what Imperial War Museum? What was his personal desire to have happen using all mm. of these effects? Yeah, I think his desire. I mean. It might be as much for himself as it is for other people, but really to create something that bridges that huge gap between, you know, 100-plus years ago and, and now, allowing you to connect with that material, not only, like, the material, but, like, the, the humans in that, you know, seeing that they're just, they're just people like us, basically, with the same fears and hopes and desires... And, and being able to communicate that way and, and communicate that in a non like academic way without having you know a narrator or an historian like between you and, and the material, just having it um, accessible and, and making people aware of what actually happened you know to not maybe a layperson, but I mean his description was you know sort of making it for fifteen year olds that had no idea about World War one. You know, giving them giving them something so they had an idea that that it happened and, and what it was like. I think what maybe one thing that's interesting is um, is actually the New Zealand story in mm. this film and the mm. the fact that this is taking place. Most of this work was done in New Zealand, mm. and I think many people don't kind of know the Anzac story. And not to you know switch out of film for a second, right. but I wonder if you could just give us a sense of what was the New Zealand and Australia story to World War One within the British context, and then why that might have 
played a role for Peter Jackson as well in terms of the familial connections. Right, yeah. I mean, on top of his, obviously, his grandfather there. and Yeah, yeah. I mean, New, Zealand's a, New Zealand is a small nation. We're not five million people. And, and back then, God, we would have been probably not even one million people. And when war was declared by Britain, we were, I'm not sure if we were the first, but we were certainly the first few, like two or three nations to, you know, immediately jump on and sign up for whatever England needed. Um, and proportionally, you know, we sent, you know, far more men than a lot of other Commonwealth nations did for our, you know, per, per capita. Um, we suffered extreme losses as well, which, you know, you you still see how present that is in the the culture back home. There's, there's memorials everywhere. We still very much um, acknowledge these key moments and, and campaigns. I mean, Gallipoli, which is in Turkey, which isn't featured here, was a, a huge... A huge um, campaign for Australia and New Zealand, which was uh, a colossal loss and, 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 I mean, I dare I say it, failure, really. It was, you know, it had a huge impact on several generations, and, and it's not something that we, you know, could ignore. And so when we get an opportunity to um, remember or, or, you know, represent or kind of translate those moments from the past to, to now, we... You know, we can't not, you know, we, we, we have to remember them. And also, this is not the only involvement that Peter Jackson had with World War One. We were talking about oh, the, right. muse- yeah. the museum exhibits that have also yeah. happened in New Zealand. I wonder if you could just mention a couple of those and kind of um, what the import of those was. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, again, speaking about Gallipoli, there's um, a museum in Wellington, Tapapa, which... Uh, houses currently an amazing exhibit. Uh, I believe it's called The Scale of War, and it features along with a lot of the collection of um, you know, original artefacts and uniforms, uh, these huge-scale um, dioramas, I suppose you'd call them, of snapshots of time of, of soldiers or, or nurses sort of in, you know, in, in a moment in that place and time, like whether it's manning a machine gun or mourning a dead comrade or you know, a nurse writing a let- reading a letter or to, you know, from back home. And... and Seeing the way that, I mean, the fact that it's been in there for, well, it'll be like th- three and a bit years now is, you know, testament to the fact that there's still, you know, hundreds of thousands of people going to there constantly. Uh, we have an- we had, sorry, another um, exhibit at another museum in Wellington which was sort of focusing on the Western Front like this, and you recreated, like, a Belgian street. It was sort of like you would walk through the journey of, like, a recruit through the World War, and, you know, you kind of enter France and see various parts of the campaign, and then... You know, move through the the battles and see other little dioramas, and we actually colorized. Um, we had a digital colorizer, a lot of the still photography uh, that's used and was used in the gallery there, and we created a large diorama. I mean, part of me also wonders though whether it's just a ploy for Peter to be able to store some of his stuff like <laughs> in these different places because he's got nowhere else to put it. We we had to take off part of the roof to put a one a tank, a World War One tank in there, and. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's good. I mean, he, he just loves to share share it, though. He's so into it. And I think, you know, his passion comes through. I mean, you can see how personal this film was to him, the, the caretaking. He worked so hard and so long on this. I mean, there was 600 hours of, of audio that we, we all just went through all of it and constantly, and then it just keeps getting refined and refined. You can see how painful it is for him, to, you know, because you just have to keep trimming and trimming and trimming it down as well as not having it so crammed with ideas that the viewer doesn't have time to kind of digest 
what's happening. So yeah, I think it's it's really sweet and amazing that he is so ready and willing to share his passion with anyone. I'm kind of curious. So how much uh, how much footage did you not use? So if you're at 100 minutes, right. what was the total amount of footage that you had to work with to get down to this? And of course, this isn't all all moving image. Some of this is cer- certainly still oh, image. Yeah, right. Yes. Well, we had about 100 hours to begin with. Uh, and from that, goodness, I mean, all up that's in there, there's probably... So that's tricky to answer because the duration will change slightly after it's retimed. But I would say there's about an hour and... 20 in there and then the rest is made up of um, stills and I mean you saw the the battle sequence which you know unfortunately well I suppose fortunately there's very little if hardly any uh, footage in sort of in battle the frontline combat the you know the face-to-face stuff doesn't really um, exist and so we kind of Peter had a clever idea to make use of um, the War Illustrated which was a uh, magazine that was published every week during World War One, and that was a means of giving sort of people back home an opportunity to kind of see what was happening, you know, there's photography in there and then sketches of the battles. Um, I should point out though that it's very much a, you know, a British propaganda magazine, but um, Peter certainly made choices about, you know, choosing imagery that wasn't really sort of pushing that so far and, you know, we, we sort of felt like the fact that this was material that was produced you know, at the time, along with the photography that we saw, you know, it's it was sort of it would fit in with it rather than being something that was you know produced much later and kind of just shoehorned in there. I'm wondering if you see other ways in which this kind of the techniques that are used in this film mm. could be used for another event or another subject mm. um, or anything that you're currently working on or a wingnut. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really excited to see what other people want to pull out of you know, the vault or, you know, the garage or wherever. I mean, I think there's, we've been, you know, building up libraries of this stuff for 100 plus years now. And it, so often it just gets viewed and then, you know, put in a tin can somewhere and then just left or maybe referred to partially with, you know, in like a new piece. And to, to use like 100% archival material and, and represent it in a way that's so immediate is... Is exciting. I mean, I think my cousin's here somewhere. There he is. His mum is really desperate for some of the uh, footage of the Russian oligarchy to be, you know, colorized. I mean, someone's got to sort of pony up with the money to do it. But you know, that's that's a vast resource that would potentially look amazing. Um, our current project, which we've moved on to since then, which we've been working on this year, uh, is. Uh, taking footage from the Beatles' uh, final album recording, Let It Be. Uh, They were filmed for a few weeks while they were recording that, and that sort of culminated in a a rooftop performance on the Apple Court building. And that was used, um, I think it was a couple of years after. You know, they broke up, and it sort of turned into a film about them kind of breaking up as opposed to sort of promoting the film. It was, you know, the footage wasn't in very good condition and wasn't, arguably really a accurate representation of what was going on with them now. and So we're using similar technology now to uh, fully restore all of that footage, which is amazing because it's really the only footage that exists of the Beatles at work in the studio making, making music, interacting with each other, just talking about life, the music, you know, <laughs> hopes and dreams. And 
Yeah, and so that's that's being worked on on now for it'll be released uh, next year. Mm. So there's always a, uh, this conversation of like, well, if if someone could have shot with color, mm. you know, photography, they would have, but yeah. of course it wasn't available. I wonder if you, again, sort of like had to tackle that question mm. of was this something that we should do? Well, I mean, look, if if the cameramen were there and and they were offered a can of black and white film or a can of color film, they would have taken the can of color film, absolutely. And and the fact that, you know, we've we've taken every possible care to be as accurate as possible with the reproduction of what was there, everything down to the um the, the puggery, which as I understand that's the um the sort of emblems and the patches that are on the helmets and things like that, figuring out exactly what that would have looked like. Um I feel like that's that's still, you know, that's acceptable. That's that's preserving what was there. I mean, also in the the sound design, Peter was very clear that he he wanted uh, a baseline of realism in terms of the the you know the the effects and the foley and and the ADR and everything. We didn't want to sort of skew it in a kind of stylized direction that you usually get in you know narrative feature film. They have a particular kind of style that they want to present things in, and, and we didn't want that at all. We wanted to make it feel like you were there. And you know, know what it actually sounded like, what it actually looked like. Mm. So, where's the film been distributed at this point? I mean, I know it's now what it's been. It's been a year since its uh, first yeah, release. Yeah, so, on, yeah. where's it gone theatrically and also streaming? Well, I mean, all around the world, you can you can get hold of it now on your usual streaming platforms. Apple, um, I don't think Netflix have it, but you can you can purchase it through sort of Google, Amazon, I think um, iTunes has yeah, it. Yeah, iTunes have it. Um, it screens uh, all through Australasia and through North America and Europe, uh, parts of Asia as well. Um, yeah, I mean, it's what's what I like about it is it still gets pulled out. You know, it had quite an unusual limited theatrical run. Uh, but people were just clamouring for it, and so that kind of grew. And now you'll often see it surface at you know events like this, or we've continued to have um, centenary sort of memorial events, uh, at least back home. Uh, mem- you know, remembering the end of World War One, which uh, was in November. Oh, that's centenary. Sorry, and um, I know it was sort of re- represented a few times for that. Um, yeah, so it's it seems to have really connected with a much wider audience than we ever really expected, which is so so great that you know that 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 translates so well. I mean, Peter put it quite nicely in that he you know we're very much obviously focusing on the perspective of a British you know Tommy soldier frontline you know daily life perspective of what it was like to be there on the ground, but you know, you could very much argue that the experience would have been incredibly similar for a, a German soldier, a French soldier, a Belgian soldier, uh, and you know, I would even argue some of the experiences on later conflicts that happen around the world, you know, a lot of, a lot of the way people react to that kind of confronting situation and the way that these, these men have described it is you know, very, very similar. I think maybe we should uh, take some questions. You mentioned uh, uh, briefly the Anzacs and the contribution of uh, the Aussies and the uh, Kiwis Mm. in uh, the conflict there at Gallipoli in 1915. I have seen brief film clips that were taken uh, during that uh, action. Mm. And I wondered, I just wondered if uh, Peter or you or other people there were tempted to uh, at least do a short 
of the same type, but about the uh, Gallipoli conflict. And I don't even know how much material exists from that time, but it was a very interesting uh, uh, sideshow, so to speak, mm. from the, uh, the Eastern and Western fronts in uh, Europe. Very little uh, moving picture footage. Um, we, we have it. Uh, in terms of a desire to make some kind of a film, um, yeah, potentially. I mean... It's a it's a huge area of interest for Peter. We we have pieces of collections arriving from around the world constantly. Uh, someone finds a diary or, or a letter, uh, and and it, it comes into us, and Peter wants to look at it immediately because he's read all the books that exist. Um, yeah, I mean, make, making something of it. I think maybe there's you know there's potentially been a a, a tentative idea about like something episodic. I mean, there were many stories in, in They Shall Not Grow Old that we, we couldn't fit in. Uh, you know, the, the rise of air warfare was a huge part of World War I that, that came out, and that's something that Peter has a keen interest in as well. Um, you know, the fact that submarines were developed then and, and used in the naval campaign, uh, the women's role in the war in, in the home front, animals. There's a vast amount of material there to kind of craft sort of different stories. Um, yeah, doing something with Gallipoli, I, I'm not sure. I think he wants to, but yeah, it, we're not sure what it might might be yet. Yeah, he's it's he's he's obsessed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe. Yeah. Film restoration's been around for a while, especially of silent films and films of that that era. Mm. I just, my question is. Did you develop new techniques? Did you use existing ones, or did you use techniques that are used that are not used for restoration and applied them to this? I mean, what we see visually is so amazing and so stunning to see. It looks better than a lot of the World War II mm. images that we see, or even Korean War uh, images. I mean, it's 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 staggering what the images are. I just wanted, kind of curious about it. I know it's a big question. Yeah, I mean, some of the technology used was uh, proprietary, and it's sort of starting to come into a more widely uh, used, a wider space for just you know a layman to start using. Well, maybe not a layman, but like more commercially available rather than you know private. Um, I think really the thing to remember is with colorization, you know, shots will look as good as the amount of time that you can spend on them, and and there were older colorization that I've seen, the, very much the approach was broad strokes, you know, a wash of color. You know, flowers would be like red and, you know, uniforms would just be brown and, you know, the sky was just one wash of blue and so detail would kind of get lost. I mean, what we did here was considerably more involved. Uh, we would, so our historians would take the restored frames, uh, identify everything down to the buttons that we used uh, the, the, the sewing on the uniforms and the patches, uh, the tiny pieces of steel present in the different parts of rifles, just as an example. Uh, oh, the, you know, the eyelets on boots, like the fact that they were, some of them were painted differently on different boots. Then that goes to some poor roto artist who basically draws around every single tiny little thing that we want to create uh, matted shapes, basically. Then that we use, to a degree, you can use, uh, again, some proprietary software to kind of uh, 
anticipate where the motion and the velocity of these shapes are going to go as things move across the screen. But in a lot of cases, uh, to get them to kind of stick, manual intervention is required to kind of keep the, the mats sort of where they need to be. Uh, then those get used to kind of house the, the colour that we apply to it, and there's a lot of back and forth. We generally, generally would create a, a colour key, like a still image from one of the shots, and sort of get happy with where things were sitting there, and then they would start applying that and rendering out um, full shots. I mean, the opening shot where it transitions to colour, rendering that takes about a day. So, you know, any changes would, you know, we need to make sure we're getting them all sort of all in a row and done before we'd, you know, pull the trigger on getting them to spit out a new version. Uh, and then, you know, once we've got those those mats, they become quite useful um, for manipulating and grading the colour later. That would come back into our colourist uh, in New Zealand and he would take the shot and have access to, say, all of the eyes in a screen or all of the faces, all of the eyebrows, all of the lips, all of the teeth, you know, all of the hair, all of the hats, all of the pants, all of the boots, all of the shoelaces, all of the guns, all of the metal on the guns, all of the... There'd be, like several layers and types of dirt and grass and foliage and sky and then he's able to kind of uh, balance as well as I mentioned before you can bring back in the restored black and white to take luminance values and kind of just sort of coax back in a bit more detail into the colour which can sometimes sort of eat away at it a wee bit and then sort of once you've got it to that point we'd kind of get it back into the cut, and then as a whole you kind of come back in later and kind of look at scenes and sort of do a more generalised broad stroke grey, just, just slightly to kind of make it so that transitioning from one shot to the next doesn't, you know, isn't, doesn't sort of pop too much if, you're, you know, if you've got like a bit of a different white value, say, because of you know, what you're doing. You, you mentioned already earlier that the, um, the, the transition shot where you go mm. out of black and white into colour, it took yes. how long? About a day, if I recall, to sort of render that out, which is tricky because it would use up a lot of their resources to kind of spit that out. I mean, we had a very talented artist working on that, which we you know, greatly appreciated. Some were quite good at um, sort of uniforms and skin tones and textures like that, like making sure that the, the, the khaki, which, I mean, there's funny stories about that, like just the khaki uniforms, you know, you'd think it's like green, but it's actually like this peculiar ratio of like yellow, grey, brown and green and then they reissued the uniform like later in the war so some guys have like the newer version of khaki which is slightly different to the original khaki because they couldn't redo the same color when they were making them and we we're able to identify all those uniforms and like it's ridiculous yeah uh, thank you so much for your hard work on the film and thanks to peter jackson for uh putting it all together making it happen uh, this is very traumatic, gut-wrenching material that you've been working with, that you worked with. How was that for you, uh, just living with that material? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, I mean, gosh, certainly I recall when we started to get some of the restored images of the, um, the corpses there. It was really quite confronting to just see, you know, the, the horror that was just everyday life for these guys. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stories that haven't made it in here that are really just, you know, gut-reaching, to, to say the least. But, I mean, I sort of I think we all got to a point where we really felt like a duty of care to, to present this material warts and all. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, it's funny. I was just talking to you outside about how some of their comments can come across as quite glib and 
lighthearted, but you know, it's important not to sort of react to them in a more contemporary way. You've got to realise that that's sort of they're dealing with such a traumatic event, and that's kind of how they soldiered on and, and just dealt with it. So it, it became quite evident to the entire team that we were all kind of on this journey where we wanted to, you know, really immortalise their humanity. You know, and that was, I don't think we could shy away from the material at that point or sort of, you know, soften the blow, so to speak. It was, I mean, it was hard work, some of it. A lot of the, the audio is really confronting. But it's, you know, I, I think it's important that, you know, it's, it's in there. It's the least we could do. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Elliot. This was really wonderful. And thank you for coming here. Yeah, thank you all. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Great. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.